Welcome to Episode 5 of The Kentucky Lawyer. I'm Brad Clark, a criminal defense and DUI lawyer based in Lexington, Kentucky. Every month, I interview a different Kentucky attorney about how they got started, what's going on in their practice, and how they plan to stay on top in the ever-competitive practice of law. Each episode is approved and submitted for one hour of Kentucky CLE credit absolutely for free. Details are available at kylawshow.com. This episode, I'm interviewing Devin Skeens, a solo practitioner in Louisville, Kentucky. Devin is a young lawyer who started his practice at the beginning of the pandemic. He focuses on family law, education law, and general civil litigation. Prior to attending law school, Devin taught high school government and history for Baltimore City Public Schools through the Teach for America program. Today, Mr. Skeens shares with us his experience of building a practice during the pandemic, his unusual path through law school, and we discuss the ethics of cases on social media. Here's my interview with Devin. Okay, Devin, tell us about your practice. Uh, my name is Devin Skeens. I'm a uh, uh, the owner of Skeens Law PLLC here in Louisville, Kentucky. We focus primarily on family law, education law, and general civil litigation, which encompasses anything from contract disputes to personal injury stuff um, uh, to occasionally some more uh, interesting and exotic things. Just depends what walks through the door. Um, but yeah, I mean, mostly I would, th- I would say family law, I spent a lot of time in family court. Okay. How long have you been in practice? I, uh, I graduated law school in 2018, uh, passed the bar in October of 2018. I, um, uh, I did a year, a little over a year, about a year and three months with, uh, Apple Red Legal Aid in, uh, Somerset, Kentucky, and then opened my firm here in Louisville in March of 2020. So right before the whole world shut down. Wow. I guess that's, that's probably a tough time to start anything. Um, yeah. You- I mean, I gotta be honest with you. It was tough. <laughs> you know, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to interrupt you. It was, I, I um, I'll tell you the, I guess the, the sordid tale. I, I, I was lured away from Apple red uh, by a job offer here in Louisville at a firm um, I started there, uh, realized I didn't like it at all. And, uh, four weeks later decided that I was, instead of, instead of making that a part of my life, I was going to open my own shop. I was going to do it myself. And, um, literally two weeks after I filed for my LLC, the governor handed down orders that everybody was to shut down. Uh, so, you know, it's been uh, an interesting year, to say the least. Uh, the first few months of, I mean, it, look, in a lot of ways, it was the worst possible timing. And I, I, I don't know. I sometimes I feel like God, it could not have. I could not have decided to do that at a worse time. But in a lot of other ways too, it was a tremendous gift uh, because the whole world was shut down. Nobody was doing anything. Uh, you know, the way that we did court in this area completely changed. And I'm not from Louisville. I, I spent three years here in law school, but I don't have tremendous roots in the area. Um, you know, my family isn't from here. I, you know, I don't have parents who know people. I don't know people, you know, I didn't go to high school with anyone here. So, you know, building those relationships is really tough when everybody's stuck at home. But at the same time, everyone was kind of relearning how to practice law in the era of COVID. And so it didn't really matter so much that I didn't know where to go and what to do for everything because hardly anybody did. Um, 
So, you know, in a lot of ways, it was the worst time. In a lot of ways, it was the best time. We were all stuck at home anyway. So they gave me a tremendous opportunity to plan and and build the foundation for my law firm before I actually had to put it into meaningful practice on a daily basis uh, with, you know, clients face-to-face and that sort of thing. So, I mean, yes, it was hard. It's been hard. It's also been tremendously rewarding. Uh, and even though it was a really tricky time, I wouldn't change it for the world. It's It's gone exactly the way I'd hoped it would. That's awesome. So why did you want to be a solo practitioner or a small firm owner? I don't know. I, I think it's sort of always been my plan. Even in law school, it was uh, it was sort of my plan. I never saw myself as somebody who would fit in well in a large firm setting. Um, a lot of my friends in law school were doing the big law thing, um, you know, going to interviews and worrying about their GPA and, um, you know, trying to book classes and things like that, trying to be in the top 10%. And I just never saw myself as being the kind of person who was going to enjoy the big law life um, for a multitude of reasons. And I don't necessarily think that going into big law is bad or wrong. I think if, if that's your personality type and that's what suits you, then have at it, do your thing. Um, but I just never felt like that was going to be right for me or that I was going to be able to be happy doing that. Uh, I've always been very public service oriented. And so I immediately wanted to go into public service, but, but always had sort of the ambition that one day I would be practicing on my own, that I would have my own firm, my name would be on the door. Uh, and I don't think I anticipated doing it this quickly, but um, circumstances are what they are. And, you know, sometimes you look at a, you look at a particular time and you realize that, you know, at this point, you have to jump or you're never going to, you have to do it or it's never going to happen. And that's the way I felt in March of 2020. I, I didn't want to stay where I was. I was unhappy where I was. I have a low threshold for being unhappy. Um, and I think it was clear to my employers that I was unhappy. It was clear to the people who knew me well that I was unhappy and I hadn't been there long enough to be as unhappy as I was. So it was clear to me then I'm going to have to make a change or I'm going to be miserable here for a long time. And I don't want to get caught in that. I, I don't want to get used to the lifestyle that this paycheck brings. I don't want to be reliant on this misery to get me through my life. So I, I made the decision then to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to cut the spigot off here. I'm going to jump out, do it on my, do it on my own. Um, and we'll see what happens. Uh, sink or swim. This is my chance. Had you and, ever, um, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. You're fine. Uh, had you ever run a business before of any kind? No, God, no, I, I don't. <laughs> and I, that's the thing too, Brad. I, you know, I don't have an MBA. I, I've nobody in my family has ever run a business. I don't, I don't have any experience running a business. All of that is foreign to me. Um, but it's also something that I had been researching on my own for a while. I'd been reading about for a while because it, it was always kind of where I wanted to go. Um, I knew that, you know, being this sort of square peg in a round hole personality that I, that I think I kind of am, I, I wasn't that the big law route wasn't going to serve me well. Um, and I was always going to be a small firm guy. I was always going to be a public service guy. I was always going to be a solo guy. It was always going to be one of those things. Um, and when the other two don't work out, then you've got solo left on the table. So that's, you know, it was kind of the only option. It's like, okay, we better learn how to do this. And I don't, 
I, I don't have any experience doing it. And I can tell you that I've, I've learned a lot, both the easy way and the hard way. I've gotten a ton of advice from people who are doing it and have been doing it for a lot longer than me. And I'm happy that I have because uh, I've been able to sidestep a few landmines that way. It's certainly, it's certainly not something to do on a whim, although it certainly seems that that's uh, that I did do it on a whim. I wouldn't recommend it for everybody under every circumstance. Okay. Um, I think that probably one of the hardest parts about starting a firm um, and particularly in your case, not being from Louisville is, is client development. Now I don't want to pry or ask anything, you know, proprietary, but what are you doing right now to get your name out and uh, get new clients? Well, the truth of the matter is I, I tell people this all the time and I really don't have any shame in doing it. The legal community in Louisville, especially the small firm community in Louisville is, um, they are without a doubt, some of the best people that I've ever met. I, I, when I first started, it was, uh, you know, I, a lot of attorneys who I didn't know, um, I was able to get in contact with through, you know, various Facebook groups and through, um, through the KJA and they were always so willing to give advice um, and they were always so willing to hook me up with other attorneys. Uh, and it's only through those attorneys really that I was able to get my first clients. Um, when I left my prior firm, I brought eight clients with me. And so those were, those were my base when I started. Uh, and then to bring in new clients, it really has relied in large part on client uh, referrals from other attorneys. Uh, maybe they don't take family court cases. Um, maybe, you know, a client is facing an education law issue and they don't know anything about that. So they send them to me because um, very few attorneys do that sort of thing. And so, you know, I, I get a lot that way. And maybe they don't practice in certain counties. Even if they do practice that area of law, they're not willing to go to to some county around here. So they'll send that person to me. Um, Without that, I don't think I would still be in business. I mean, other lawyers have really have have propped me up in a big way. And only in the last few months have I started trying to have I really started investing in trying to bring in more um, more organic clients um, from Google and Facebook and social media and um, and what other methods I can try to find, whatever other methods are available. Only recently, I think, have I really felt like, okay, I need to make this something that I'm able to do on my own and not rely exclusively on attorney referrals. Although I will say to this day that the, the primary, the primary way that I get clients is other attorneys sending me clients or past clients referring new people to me. It's, it's, it's been everything to my firm. What advice would you have for somebody who wanted to set up their own referral network or generate referrals from other attorneys? Just try to meet as many people as you can. I mean, it really, and it's, and the advice I got early on, um, and, and this was, this was at the very beginning of COVID. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense in the COVID context, but if you're going somewhere and you're going there exclusively, your, your goal, when you go to say, you're going to some chapter meeting of whatever club that you're going to the rotary club and you're going your your exclusive purpose for wanting to go there is to try to meet new people so that you can get your name out there so the next time they have somebody walk in their office and they have um, a pending divorce and they need an attorney but that attorney doesn't take divorce cases or doesn't have time or whatever doesn't do the county 
they'll think of you and they'll send the case to you. That's your primary reason for going to this meeting. Um, and it may be your primary reason for going to that meeting, but rather than focusing on how many business cards you can put into other attorneys' hands, focus on how many business cards you can take from other attorneys. Because and the, the logic behind that person who gave me that advice was, people will remember you more if you seemed interested in them, not just in using them to get clients from them. Uh, and, you know, I've made an awful lot of friends in the Louisville legal community in the last year, and I owe them an immense amount of gratitude for the number of clients that they've sent me. People who really had no reason to, I mean, they could have sent, they could have sent their clients to anybody. They could have sent their clients to some guy they've known for 30 years and they didn't. Oftentimes they chose to send those clients to me. I don't know why. Um, I'm grateful. I, and I, I'm appreciative and I hope that uh, I hope that they continue to do so. I try to treat every client that I have um, with as much respect as I possibly can. I try to do my very, very best on every single case. And I hope that the reason they keep sending people to me is that people continue to be satisfied with the, with the work product that they get from my firm uh, and from the work that I do for them. My, my main strategy in keeping clients coming into this office has been doing the best work that I possibly can for each and every client who comes in um, and hoping that they tell their friends. And yeah, I invest some money in, in Google marketing. I invest some money in social media marketing. Is that the primary way that I get clients at this point? No, the primary way that I get clients at this point is that I think other lawyers believe that I'll do a good job when they send me a referral. And so they keep sending them to me. And that's my main goal is to keep that up as best I can. Yeah, I think that's a good strategy. I think with all this shiny, all these shiny toys that are out there, you know, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, whatever, where lawyers are trying to put ads now, it's important to focus on kind of the, also the tried and true methods, right? And that's, you know, networking yeah. and, and getting those referrals because what I find at least is the quality of the uh, potential case that you get will be much higher if another attorney has referred it to you and the client will be, um, much better qualified than someone who just finds you from, you know, a Google ad or a Facebook post or, or, or Instagram or whatever. And yeah, so, and you know, the, the pandemic has really made things hard, um, for, for networking. I, you know, I'm not a networker. I was, like I said, I'm not a business guy. I'm a, I'm, I don't know. I'm a weirdo who wants to do it on my own, but as far as making friendships with other attorneys, building relationships with other attorneys, um, so that they feel like, this guy's great. I'm going to send this client to him. He'll do a good job for them. That's been especially tough during the pandemic because nobody's going anywhere. I mean, those, those places that I would have gone, whether it's, you know, a bar meeting or, you know, a club I might've joined or whatever, those things aren't happening in the same way that they were before. I don't have any idea what that process would look like in pre COVID times or what it will look like after COVID is over and we can all go back to normal if, and when that ever happens. I just know that I spent a lot of the first few months um, when we were all stuck in lockdown, trying to talk to a couple of attorneys a day. That was my main goal. And it wasn't really with the, I, I don't think I ever had the conscious thought that if I talk to a bunch of attorneys, they'll send me clients. A lot of times it was like, 
I have this, I, you know, one of my a dozen, one of my dozen cases is weird. I have a question. I don't know any. I don't know who to ask. I'm going to call this one person that I know. Well, they don't know, but they know an attorney who might. So they send me to that person. Well, then I just made a friend, you know. And I still get, I still get some cases passed from people who um, didn't know me at all prior to me opening my law firm, and that's a tremendous gift. I mean, that really is. Um, I I can't. I can't overstate how appreciative I am of that. Uh, so no, I, you know, basically I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the support of other lawyers who probably went through the same process um, when they were first starting out as well. And either, either think I'm good enough to send me uh, clients and they know I'll take care of them or they take pity on me. One of the two and either way I get clients out of it. So I'm, I'm happy about it. So, you mentioned that COVID has made it more difficult to network. I mean, are you mainly just reaching out to people over the phone or how, how are you doing this networking? Yeah. yeah I mean, I, social media comes into it uh, to a certain degree too. Um, I don't love social media. I try to spend less time on it than I used to. Um, but I'm also of the generation where, uh, you know, I got social media when I was in middle school, uh, maybe early high school. And I've had a Facebook ever since then. So it's difficult for me to remember a world without it. And because of that, you know, and, and because of the marketing advantages that it gives you, marketing opportunities that it gives you as a small business, I kind of have to have it even if I don't enjoy it that much. So a lot of times it is that I will meet a new attorney on Facebook through a mutual friend and try to reach out and talk to them. I mean, sometimes that happens. I don't know if it's a I don't think it's necessarily a conscious decision that I'm making that, Hey, if I reach out to a bunch of people, they're going to send me clients. Mm -hmm. It was never, it was never that way. I never really, I never really thought of it that way. Although that has been how it's, how it's turned out a lot of the times people, you know, tend to want to hear what you're doing uh, when you're just opened a new firm, especially I think when you're a younger attorney and you've made that decision to, to jump off that cliff, what are you doing? That's different from what I'm doing. Um, you know, how can I help you? having that mentality of how can I help? Um, I try to have that with other attorneys and it, it really seems that other attorneys more often than not try to have that mentality with me too. And that's paid huge dividends for my firm. I, I don't know if everybody in the state um, is lucky enough to be uh, around attorneys like that. I, but I do know that um, our local bar here in Louisville, I couldn't ask for for a better group of humans. Uh, and they're, they're the only reason I've survived the last year. You mentioned people asking you, you know, what are you doing differently? What are you doing differently? Um, <laughs> I think education law is a, a thing that I do that's different. I, whenever I mention that I do that to anyone, uh, their eyebrows kind of go up and they're like, oh, okay, that's, uh, that's interesting. I didn't, um, you know, I've never heard somebody say that they, that they take those cases. And I think it is uncommon for a small firm to take uh, education cases. I, I don't know how many firms in Kentucky do it, um, but it means something to me. I, I'm a former teacher. I taught high school for two years before I went to law school. And, um, you know, my experience in the classroom really taught me an awful lot about um, what I think um, parents' expectations for what is happening for their children in their classrooms differs from the reality of what is happening 
in their classrooms. It's not to say necessarily that schools are always acting in bad faith or that teachers act in bad faith. Uh, I don't think that's the case, but I do think that the law on student rights, especially as it comes to students with disabilities or students with IEPs or students with 504 plans, the law is really good for students. Uh, and a lot of times parents don't know what they're entitled to, don't know what to ask for, don't know how to ask for it, uh, and don't know that even if the school says no, they have other options. Um, and so because that meant so much to me, I wanted to take those kinds of cases when I went out on my own. And I don't get as many of those as I do of family law, not even close. I'd like to get more. Um, but I think the reality is that, number one, I don't think it's widely known what exactly, you know, the rights are that students have. Uh, I don't think parents know that they have those rights. I don't think parents immediately jump to, I need an attorney for this, when the school isn't necessarily cooperating with what they think is in their child's best interest. Um, so oftentimes I think that just the lack of awareness is really what's preventing me from getting clients on that issue. But yeah, I think that's the, that's the main thing that I'm doing differently. And, and attorneys, I think are very interested in that. They want to ask me questions about that. Um, because like, for instance, attorneys who do estate planning or students or attorneys who do family law, they do occasionally run into clients who are, you know, if they're doing a special needs trust or if they are doing a divorce that involves a child with special needs, that child is most likely in school and facing education issues. And it may be that they need an attorney for those issues. Um, they just don't know who to send them to. I, I want to be the person that they send them to. So, you know, having that thing that sets you apart uh, in that way, you know, that's that's been an important component of, uh, for me, when opening this firm, I wanted to have, you know, one thing that I could point to and say, this is, this is a thing I do that even though it may not be my only niche, this is one thing that I do where people know when they see an education issue, they can send that client to me uh, and I can take care of them. Great. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. And I think that, you know, kind of hooks in really well with family law, which I think you said was with the bulk of what you practice. Um, what do you like about family law? So I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure that I did like family law uh, before I opened my own firm. Um, I took, I started taking family law cases when I opened my firm because I, it was what I felt most comfortable doing. Uh, and when you open your own firm, you know, at least, at least if you're smart, you're scared to death that you're going to malpractice yourself. And you always should be scared of that. Uh, if you're an attorney, you should always be doing everything you can to make sure that you're, you're providing the best quality representation that you can for your clients and don't take stuff that you don't know how to do. Um, so I knew how to do family law. I felt really good about taking family cases. It's what I had done uh, the entire time I was with legal aid. So I felt I had enough experience in that to be able to do it and do it well. Okay. So that was, that was the first component of my law firm of what I wanted to, uh, the type of type of clients that I wanted to bring in, but I don't know that I necessarily loved it or thought I was going um, to love it. But after the first year of my firm being open, I can tell you that I really do enjoy family cases now. And I think the thing that has sort of moved the tide on it, um, I, I feel like for me, you know, I, I think every lawyer, when they go to law school, they have, they have dreams of sort of doing work that is 
macro level important. You have dreams of arguing in front of the Supreme Court. You have dreams of arguing constitutional issues. You have dreams of, you know, creating case law that has an impact on a huge amount of people. And family law always, for, I, for whatever reason, felt too small to me. And then when I opened my own firm, I think there was, there was, I can't remember if it was a particular case or not, probably was, but at some point it clicked in that, you know, every single case that I have in family court, I am making a huge impact on my clients' lives and their children's lives uh, and the opposing party's life. I am having a, a, an impact that is, uh, that will be felt for years and it may not be a constitutional issue. It may not be something that with one stroke of a pen grants rights to, you know, a whole, uh, a whole class of people. It's not that. But that doesn't make it any smaller. And I think what I love about family law is that every single client who comes in to my office is facing an issue that may not be of catastrophic importance to the world, but is of catastrophic importance to that particular client. And to that particular client's family and they need help they need somebody who knows what they're doing who can do it well and being that person that's incredibly rewarding um, it never stops being rewarding every family client i get you know that's that's the name of the game you're trying you, you know this is twofold i'm i have a business and i want to do what's in the best interest of my business but i'm also a law firm and it's required that I do what's in the best interest of my clients. And I want those two things to always be the same thing. Doing the what's in the best interest of my client will always be in the best interest of my business. And changing my client's life for the better never makes me look worse. So that's what I love about family law. It, it's, um, it couldn't be more important to the people who I actually represent, the people who actually um, prop my business up from day to day. Great. What's one thing that you wish you'd known before you opened your, your firm? What's, what's something that would have been nice to know? Um, I wish I had known early on to surround myself with other lawyers. Um, I, when I, when I got my first office, which I didn't, I, I didn't do for a little while because of the pandemic. Uh, I think I waited two or three months. When I got my first office, I looked for, uh, basically the cheapest thing I could find. Okay. <laughs> cheapest thing I could find in a place where I could meet with clients. Uh, and of course, cost is something that you always have to think about, but I didn't have any lawyers around me. I didn't have any other lawyers within shouting distance of my office. And that is unbelievably isolating. Um, I've since moved and I am now around other lawyers, despite the fact that I am a solo practitioner. I want to be a solo practitioner. I don't want to be an island unto myself. And it's very, very important to me uh, to have other lawyers around, especially other uh, experienced lawyers around uh, who have more experience than I do, who can keep me from messing up but who can also just give me general advice about being an attorney, uh, not even necessarily about litigation, uh, just about running a firm. And, you know, that's, that's going to be invaluable to anybody who's opening their own practice, having other attorneys around that you can ask questions 
uh, from and, and who are willing to be generous with their time. Um, that's, that's a game changer. It, it really did. I wasn't certain that I was going to be able to do this until I moved in and now I'm around other attorneys. And I tell you, my confidence that this will work has never been higher because I feel like no matter what problem comes my way, there are attorneys around me who know, have seen it before, have probably experienced it before, and they can point me in the right direction. And having those people around you that you trust, that's invaluable. I wish I'd known that at the beginning. I wouldn't have wasted the money on another office. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think that experience is, you know, the best teacher and, um, you know, that it, it's just something you've got to work your way through. You know, it's, it's not just, it's not making mistakes. You're just learning. Um, what advice would you give someone wanting to open their own office? Um, Lord, I don't know. It, it's, I, I almost feel like the last year has been a, a, a sort of surreal experience for me. I think because the world changed so much so drastically and my own personal world changed so much so drastically within the, you know, within the span of three months, I had moved cities, bought a house and opened a law firm. And now the whole world is shut down because of a global pandemic, the likes of which we'd never seen. So, so the last year has been sort of a fever dream. I've learned an immense amount and I'm a, I can honestly say that I'm a different person than I was a year ago. The advice that I would give to people, but I, but, but that being said, even though I have learned a lot and I am a different person than I was a year ago, I'm not a clairvoyant and I'm not a savant and I don't know everything. My best advice to somebody who is thinking about opening their own law firm uh, is you should think about it. You should think about it a lot. You should take some time and think about it. Read about it. There are a lot of really great books. There's one. Um, it's like how to start how to start and uh, manage a law firm. I think is what it's called, uh, and it's published by the ABA. And they've been publishing new editions every year since like 1983 or something. It's an amazing book, and I bought it in law school. I bought an old edition, but I absolutely loved it because I was trying to plan ahead. I wanted to do this sort of thing. Of course, in law school, it was, you know, if nobody will hire me, what am I going to do? And this was sort of my backup plan. But now it is the plan. Now it's exactly where I want to be and what I want to do. And if that's your thought process, if you're an attorney who's not happy where you are, um, and you think this might be the better way to do it, or maybe you want to move home to Cumberland County, Kentucky, and open a law firm there and slow your life pace down a little bit um, and, you know, make your own money and answer to nobody but yourself and your clients and the judge. I, th I say go for it. But just I, my advice to them would be to do your research first. There's an awful lot to know. Uh, there's an awful lot to consider. And it's not for the faint of heart. I, a lot of lawyers, I think, just like a lot of, just like a lot of other type A professional people, they want guarantees. They don't like, they're, they're a risk adverse crowd. And telling them that there's no guarantee, um, you know, you don't, you know, if I don't get any new clients this month, if I don't, you know, if I don't bill any time, I don't get paid anything. You know, what I get is what I bill, what I make is what I earn. Um, and 
you kind of just have to be resigned with that. You have to be okay with it. If you're going to open your own firm, my advice to you is make certain that you have thought through what that means. Make sure that you uh, are prepared for what that reality is going to look like. Um, and then once you've decided that that's what you want to do, and you've decided that you are the type of person who can, uh, who can handle that life, then do it. Don't look back. Don't have second thoughts. Wake up every day with the thought that if it's going to be, it's up to me and I have to do it. Uh, and, you know, I'm not perfect with that. God, we all have hard days, but I try my very best to wake up every day with the thought in mind that um, it ain't going to get done unless I do it. This is my firm. This is my name on the door. Uh, and these are my clients. Nobody else is going to do the things that they need. Nobody else is going to, you know, provide them with the representation that they have paid me to give them. It has to be me. And that's fine. That's what I bargained for. Uh, some days that's easier than others. But I would just advise people to be prepared for that fact. There's no there's no backup when you're your own boss. Um, you know, it's you can't hand it off to somebody else. You got to be prepared to be responsible for everything. And, uh, you know, don't take that lightly. You shouldn't. It's, it's very serious business. Okay. Um, tell me a little bit about your law school experience. I understand your path is a little different than, than most. <laughs> My path was, um, <laughs> a long and a long and winding road, Brad. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, it seems like uh, through most of my life, I've taken the long way around. Um, when I got out of college, I didn't know if I wanted to be a lawyer or not. It had kind of always been the plan that I would go to law school. Um, but I, I used to, I used to clerk for a couple of different firms when I was in law school and I made it a point or when I was in college, I'm sorry, when I was a senior in college, I went to Northern Kentucky university and I got, you know, several different whatever, you know, runner jobs, making not a lot of money and, you know, not with a lot of responsibility, but I made it a point every time I did that to every, every attorney I came upon, I would always try and ask them, you know, if you had it to do over again, would you go to law school again? Would you make that choice? Knowing what you know now about the profession, knowing where you were going to end up in the profession, would you make the choice to do that again? Or would you take another route? Would you do something else? And I can tell you, this is a shame, but it's the truth. It's the God's honest truth. I won't lie to you. There was only one attorney out of probably dozens that I asked who told me they would make the decision to go to law school again. Every one of them, except that one, told me that they would do something else. They would teach. They would go to engineering school. One of them wanted to write poetry. I mean, there was always something else that they wished that they had done. And if they had known where they would end up, they would never have chosen to go to law school. They had to do over. And that scared me to death. As a, as a college senior who was thinking about law school, I'd already taken the LSAT. I'd already filled out my applications. That scared me to death. I didn't want to go into a profession that made everyone miserable. I didn't want to be miserable. Um, so I, <laughs> I um, by chance, found out about this uh, federally funded program called Teach for America that sends um, 
sends people who are accepted into the program to uh, high need areas to teach school. Basically the idea, um, and I think it's a flawed idea, but the idea is that really smart people, if they are, if they become teachers in places that need good teachers, then education can be better in those places. And um, I applied to teach for America um, as sort of like a, if I get into this thing, then I'll know that law school isn't the right way to go. And, and if I don't get in, then I'll know law school is my only other option. So that's what I'll do. And I, uh, I never dreamed that I would get in I, because I would, you know, Teach for America accepts like 7% of people who apply. I was applying from a small state school in Kentucky. Most people who apply are applying from Yale and Harvard and whatever. And so I never dreamed that I had any opportunity at all uh, to actually do that. And then I got accepted <laughs> and then I had to do it because <laughs> I told myself I would. And um, I, uh, they sent me to Baltimore City, Maryland to teach high school for two years. And uh, I did that. And after my two years teaching, I realized that I, uh, I, still, um, I still wanted to do law, even though you know, I knew how the attorneys that I talked to before, how they felt about being lawyers, I didn't care. I still wanted to do it and uh, wasn't going to be talked out of it. And uh, so I did. I quit teaching after two years. I, uh, I enrolled in law school. Uh, and came back to Kentucky um, to go to U of L. Now, I assume what you're asking about is uh, what happens next, which is kind of um, a wild ride. And I won't get too much in the weeds, but um, when I was growing up, my stepdad was a volunteer firefighter in my hometown in Kentucky. And when I was 13, he died in the line of duty. Uh, he'd been my stepdad. I think they'd been married six or seven years by that point. Um, and it's important to know that I note that he died in the line of duty because in Kentucky, that is a special designation that requires an investigation by the Kentucky Fire Commission into how that particular firefighter died. And there are certain state regulations that go into uh, defining what in the line of duty means. But being designated as dying in the line of duty uh, entitles the family to certain state benefits that they would not have otherwise if the firefighter had, for instance, not died in the line of duty. So he died in the line of duty when I was, uh, when I was 13. And one of the state benefits that Kentucky statutes confer upon the families of fallen firefighters is um, waived in-state tuition for all colleges and universities in the state. When I enrolled at NKU for college, uh, my tuition was waived for the four years. Essentially, what I had to do was provide them with my birth certificate showing my mother as my mother and her marriage certificate to my stepdad showing him as my stepdad. They accepted that. They waived my tuition all four years. I went to NKU. When I was making the decision to come back to Kentucky for law school, uh, I contacted the Kentucky Fire Commission because I didn't know if the tuition waiver had any sort of limits on it. If I was, you know, if I got to a certain age, would it no longer apply? Does it apply to postgraduate degrees? Can you still use it for law school? I, I didn't know. 
so I called him and I asked and the, the fire commissioner, who's a guy I've known for a long time and know pretty well. He said, you know, Devin, I don't know. Let me get our lawyers to look at it and I'll, I'll get back to you. He got back to me later and he said, our lawyers have looked at it. And according to the statute, there's no limit. Um, you can use it forever. As, as old as you are, it doesn't matter. There's no limit on, there's no limit on, um, excuse me, there's no limit on semesters that you can use it. There's no limit on, uh, on types of degrees you can get, no limit at all. So you should be good to go. Just tell your law school about it. I said, okay. I applied to all three state schools. I got into UofL, I decided to go to UofL. I contacted the, uh, the financial aid office at UofL, told them about my tuition waiver. They said, shouldn't be a problem. Let us get your, uh, you know, we're going to get some documentation from you. Shouldn't be a big deal. So, okay. So I sent them all the documentation they requested. A month before school started, they got back to me and told me that um, it was the school's position, and I guess the school's lawyer's position, that under the definition of the statute, I didn't qualify for the tuition waiver due to the fact that I was a stepchild and not a biological or adopted child. Uh, and it's, I mean, basically my position was that's news to me and I'm sure it's news to NKU since they waived my tuition for four years already. Um, I argued with them. I got the fire commission to send them a letter stating that their interpretation of the law was wrong um, because it was. They refused to back down on that. Um, and so I didn't really have much of a choice at that point. It was either, I, I, it was too late for me to transfer school somewhere else. So either I was gonna sit out a year and get this figured out, or I was going to pay the tuition and go to law school. So I took out federal loans and paid the tuition and went to law school. And then I, I mean, I, basically I had sort of, I had sort of resigned myself that this was the way it was gonna be. They were gonna make me pay for law school. Um, you know, I still have it better than most kids. I didn't have to pay for undergrad, so I can't complain too much. Uh, so this is just what I'll have to do. And then my first year in law school, I got a, a clerking job at a local firm and I was telling my boss about it. Uh, and uh, like, as I was telling him the story, his eyes were getting big. And at the end of it, he said, you know, you should really sue them. And, uh, I was like, you know, I can't, I can't afford to do that. I don't, I can't, I can't pay an attorney to sue U of L. I can't go up against U of L. And he's like, I'll do it. I'll do it for free. Just you got to sue them. You got to do it. They're wrong. Um, and so I agreed to do so. And I think he was right. And I, um, I owe a huge amount of gratitude to him. But anyway, we filed suit my first year in law school against my law school. And um, I did all three years of law school while the litigation was ongoing. Uh, we, uh, we filed our complaint in Jefferson Circuit. They filed a motion to dismiss. The motion to dismiss was granted uh, for failure to state a claim. We appealed to the Kentucky Court of Appeals uh, we wrote briefs, we did oral arguments, and uh, 
I was studying for the bar in 2018 when this when the Court of Appeals um, came down with their decision 3-0 uh, in my favor. So, you know, I don't know of a lot of law students who end up having to sue their law school during law school, um, but that was the that was the scenario. And I think, you know, look, none of this is an indictment of U of L's law program. The, the law school at U of L was was a fantastic place to be a law student. My professors were incredible. Uh, the deans were great. I have no complaints about the educational quality of the law school. It, my beef really isn't even with the law school. It's with the overarching university, the financial aid department of the university. That's all it ever was with. It had nothing to do with the law school themselves and still doesn't to this day. I, you know, I don't hold any grudges. I won. There's no reason to hold a grudge if you win. Um, but I will say that law school is, I mean, we all know, we're all lawyers. We all know that, that law school is really, really good at teaching theoretical components of the law and is not yet that great at teaching more practical elements of practicing law. Suing my law school while I was in law school taught me more about the practice of law than anything I did in law school. And that's not an indictment of the law school at all. It's just true. It's just true. I learned so much being a client in a lawsuit that I use to this day. I remember how that felt. And I think it really does help me have empathy for my clients. You know, I know what it's like to be clueless because you've never done it before. And I know what it's like to feel so emotionally invested in something uh, that you can't be objective. There's just no way. And I know how important it was for me to have an advocate, even though I was a law student who, you know, knew a little bit about the law, to have an experienced attorney representing me and telling me what was in my best interest. Well, there's no way I could have done it. There's no way I could have done it on my own. I thank God every day that you know, the right people always seem to end up in my path when they need to be. Um, so anyway, that's my law school story. And I don't know, <laughs> it is not a, it is not a usual law school story. Um, but man, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was a struggle. But uh, at the end of the day, me and my, uh, my attorney, basically by ourselves, took on the University of Louisville and all their lawyers and um, we won. So I feel good about that. I feel proud about it. That's really interesting. Okay, now it's time for our ethical dilemma. Each month I take a few minutes out of each episode to pose an attorney ethics hypothetical for our guest. These hypotheticals are based on Kentucky bar opinions and real MPRE questions. Each segment lasts about 15 minutes or 0.25 hours. Listen to all 12 monthly episodes of our podcast in a year, and you'll walk away with enough continuing education and ethics credits for that year. Today's hypothetical has to do with the duty of confidentiality online. Devin, are you ready? I think so. I'm going to do my best. All right. Um, so the subject, as I said today, is disclosure of, disclosure of information online. Question number one, and this comes from KBA Ethics Opinion E-447, issued January 18th, 2019. So Devin, in a blog or other social media, may a lawyer reveal information relating to the representation of a client or former client without the client's consent? In a blog or in social media, 
Can a lawyer reveal information relating to the representation of a current or former client without the client's consent? Did I get that right? That's a question. Yeah, I don't think so. No, I'm going to say no. All right. The answer is no. And the Bar hey. Association. Go ahead. Yeah, good good work. You no, get, just you, celebrating. I'm, I can't believe you get, it. You get one point for that. Um, and really, most of the time, the answers to these are you can't you can't you can't do it, but um, we'll find out. Maybe there are some that you can. Um, and the Supreme Court, you know, they cited to a number of rules, uh, 1.9 C2 and comment 16, 1.6 A, um, ABA journal article, a, uh, a Indiana case. And really, you know, what they said was that, um, you know, this duty of confidentiality in Kentucky, it's, you know, it's very broad. Um, and in fact, are, we have a, a broader definition of information relating to the representation of a client than that found in the ABA model code of professional responsibility. Um, you know, instead of, um, you know, having exceptions for, and we'll talk about this in just a little bit, um, you know, ours is pretty strict. Um, if you're going to relay any information about, the, about a client's representation, you absolutely have to have the client's consent. So, that brings us to question number two. May an attorney reveal the identity of a current or former client in a blog or other social media without the client's consent? Devin. I'm going to go out on a huge limb here and say no. That's right. Um, hey. Because we have KBA Ethics Opinion 253, which told us that absent consent, a lawyer may reveal names and addresses of clients in only a few circumstances. The first of which is when the information is in the public record as a result of the attorney's representation, or two, where the circumstance makes it obvious that the client does not expect confidentiality as to the existence of the attorney-client relationship, or number three, where the client is specifically authorized in writing the release of the information. So if you're going to talk about a client's case on your website or on your blog or on social media, you don't just need their consent. You need it authorized in writing to even reveal just their name, that you fact that you represented them. Why do you think that we take such a, a strict interpretation of this rule, Devin? Why does, why does the bar want us to be so um, to err on this side of confidentiality? I don't know. I think it's probably just uh, best practice. I mean, it's easy for lines to get blurred uh, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to confidentiality, and it's just much easier if you stay well, well far of the line. And I think that that's probably what they're uh, what they're trying to encourage attorneys to do. Just assume that you should not, uh, unless you have express written consent of the client. Just just assume that you shouldn't. I mean, if you go to my website right now, I don't have anything about any clients on there. I have some reviews from clients, but those are reviews that they've given me with for the express purpose of putting them on my website and it's not the client's full name um, and it's you know nothing specific about their case so you know I don't think it's necessary I don't think it's necessary and not only do I not think it's necessary I think you know if you're gonna there is that requirement of confidentiality that you not you, you not uh, disclose to anyone who the identity of your clients are and um, you know, it's not it's not necessary for you to do that online. That it, that rule exists for that purpose, and just stay stay as far away from even almost going over the line as you possibly can. I think that's probably what they're going for there. 
Right. Now, question number three. Do you think there's an exception uh, to the first two questions that I asked for information that's contained in a public record? For, um, for instance, say you won your trial um, for Joe Smith and there's a there's a judgment in the public record. Can you now put Joe Smith's name on your website or the information about the case? Yeah, that's a trickier question. But again, I'm going to I'm going to err on the side of caution because I think the KBA is probably going to do the same thing. And I'm going to say no as well. That's right. The answer is no. Um, and even if the information is in the public record, as I said, we have a broader definition of information relating to the representation of a client than the model code does. And, um, you know, I think that this is actually well-founded. I mean, just because something's in a court docket uh, doesn't necessarily mean that a person, a client, wants that to be on, you know, johnattorney.com. You know, they they should have that say. They should be the one that comes to that determination. And um, Yeah, especially because, like, trial court stuff is hard to find generally. Like, it would be hard for me to find a particular trial court case regarding a particular somebody and find out who their attorney is your website though is easy much easier to find especially for you know the lay the common lay person i think that would be that would open you up a lot more to um to the breach of that confidentiality for sure now i will say the bar noted one other exception um to um to this and so without client consent they said a lawyer may reveal names and addresses and the nature of the representation where necessary to facilitate a firm merger or lateral transfer. And that's from KBA Ethics Opinion E443. And there may be other situations they noted in which a lawyer should be permitted to reveal client information. As example, in comment H to section 60 of the restatement, the American Law Institute cited cooperating with other lawyers with similar issues, for example, personal injury lawyers with products liability claims and cooperating with reasonable efforts to obtain information about clients in law practice for pur public purposes, such as historical research, for example, a biography of a deceased client. However, they noted, um, there is no justification for revealing information without consent about past or pre present clients in a blog or other social media. In Office of Lawyer Regulation v. Pershek, a Wisconsin case, a lawyer was suspended for blogging about her clients. In N. Ray Smith, an Indiana case, a lawyer was disbarred for writing a book about a former client. Oof. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> now, the disciplinary cases involve negative disclosures. I believe that both of those attorneys were you know, critical of their clients. But the rule against disclosure, they note, applies to all information, whether positive, neutral, or negative. So, even if you really want to put that, you know, my client was acquitted of this terrible thing and, you know, uh, we've exonerated them. You can't do that without the client's, you know, written consent. Um, and certainly don't write anything negative about your client. Like my client, you know, they actually did commit that crime or something like that. That's, <laughs> that, that's how you get this part. So um, just to finish out here real quick, um, you know, the bar also noted that lawyers should be careful in using thinly disguised hypotheticals. You know, sometimes we like to talk about our cases with other lawyers. We like to talk to our cases about potential, you know, average people to see what a potential juror might think. Um, if you're going to use a hypothetical, it can't have a reasonable likelihood that a third party may ascertain the identity or situation of the client from the facts set forth in the hypothetical. So be careful even when using hypothetical terms. So um, I think that's, that's good for this week on ethics. Uh, Devin, do you have anything to add about this issue? No, uh, just that, you know, 
confidentiality is really important and I'm really interested in keeping my law license. Um, and you know, the fact that the bar takes it so seriously means that I want to take it really seriously too. And, uh, you know, ethical issues are, are, especially as a solo attorney, I think it ties in a lot to what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. If you're going out on your own, there is no safety net. There is nobody watching over you. You are responsible for making sure that you comply with all of these rules. Uh, and the only person who's going to be held accountable for any potential violation of these rules is you. So you better start thinking long and hard about how you're going to make sure that you comply with every uh, responsibility that you have under the ethics rules. And I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about it. And I know every other solo practitioner probably does too. Um, so I'm really, I'm really glad that we're having more conversations about them. Uh, I feel like, I feel like I hear about ethical issues more now as a solo practitioner than I did as a legal aid attorney, and um, that's probably because more of the people in my circles now are thinking more about legal about ethical issues, uh, and that's important. We should be. That's that's good. I think for the practice. Okay. Yeah, no, I think those are good observations. Um, I've got just a couple more minutes for you, Devin. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of fun questions. Sure. If you had a billboard, what would it say? Um, oh man, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> number one, I don't. I don't know how much billboards cost, but probably more than I would be willing to spend on one. Um, and. Uh, I, Nothing rhymes with skeins, so I don't. I don't know that I. I would probably just be a huge logo, uh, and it would not have my face on it because I couldn't stand the embarrassment of that. So, <laughs> that's not a fun answer, but that's the only one I got, Brad. That's all I got on that. That's okay. Um, if you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I didn't? Um, no, Brad. I think you did a great job. I just <laughs> want you to know that. <laughs> I've listened to a few of these episodes and you're always, you're always very thorough with your guests. I appreciate that about you. This is a good show. Um, what would I have asked me? Uh, I don't know. I think you did a good job. I think you covered all your bases. I'm sorry. I'm not giving you a lot to work with on these questions. Am I? You're doing great. You're doing great. We're almost done. Um, <laughs> let me just close by, you know, asking you this, Devin, where can our listeners connect you with you online? If they want to find your website, find your social media, where, where should they look for you? Uh, they can find me on all of the major social media uh, platforms. I'm at Skeens Law on Facebook. I'm at skeens-law.com. That's my website. Uh, I'm at Twitter uh, at Law Skeens. Um, I have an Instagram, I think, but I don't think I've ever posted to it. I probably should start doing that. I don't know. The Instagram doesn't work well with my personality because I don't take a lot of pictures. And that's really all it is. You know, I, I'm more of a witty observations and text kind of guy. Uh, but anyway, the, they can connect with me on there. Um, and I think that's that's probably it. You can send me an email. I got, I get 900 a day, but I'll eventually find yours. Uh, it's Devin at skeens law.com. Well, that's it for episode five. As always, I'm Brad Clark for the Kentucky lawyer. I'd like to thank everyone for listening and encourage you to get your free CLE credit. Just search for the Kentucky lawyer on the KBA CLE page or go to KYLawshow.com to get the activity code for this episode. If you or someone you know would make a great guest for the show, send me an email at brad at unconvicted.com. 
or find us on Facebook as The Kentucky Lawyer. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you're listening to this in a podcast app. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next month with another great conversation.